This is the Food Factor Podcast, the show that talks about the connection between your health and what you eat or don't eat. I'm your host, Stephanie Mahachek, clinical nutritionist, health coach, science nerd, perma student, and mother of four. I love dogs, babies, and most of all, talking about all things health, wellness, and the weirdness of the human body. Thank you for being here. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Food Factor Podcast. I am your host, Stephanie Mahachek, and I am super excited to talk today about a topic that you may or may not have ever heard of. This topic is called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Now, it sounds really in-depth and kind of scary, but I promise it's not. I'm going to break down how it is related to gluten and wheat allergy And I'm also going to talk a little bit about symptoms related to all of these, as well as some guidance on how in the world to manage it if you think you have it, how it's diagnosed, all of those fun things. We're going to get into all of that. But the reason I'm bringing this topic up is, one, it's a topic that not a lot of people have really known about. It's not as commonly known as, say, celiac disease or other gut issues. But it's one that keeps coming to me in my private practice, and I figure I need to talk to more people about this because it may be impacting you and you might not even connect the dots that it's causing you issues. So gluten, I want to talk about gluten for a second. Gluten is a protein found in wheat products. You've probably heard of gluten at this point. It's sticky. It helps bind elements of a recipe together in in the case of, you know, like bread or pastas. It's also added to non-bread items, so things like sauces or marinades as a way to thicken them or bind them together. Now, gluten over the years has become very, very popular, and gluten-related disorders are also becoming more common knowledge, but maybe you haven't heard of them or maybe you're getting them kind of confused or kind of lumped all together. So let's break this down. Celiac disease is probably one of the most commonly known conditions in relation to gluten, but it can also be super misunderstood. Celiac disease is a genetic autoimmune condition, and the person must inherit the genes for it. The genes must then be turned on or triggered or activated, and in combination with that, the person must also be eating gluten, which is not hard to do. But different triggers, such as stress or trauma or infection, can cause the genes to be expressed or turned on. But also, other environmental factors like exposure to chemicals or pesticides can do this as well. Sidebar, nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics, how, gene, how nutrients interact with our genes, is a huge topic right now and one that I'm personally diving into even deeper in my doctoral program. It is totally the next wave of nutrition. It is totally the next wave of healthcare. It is fascinating, but we are in the super, super infancy stage of it. And a lot of research is kind of coming out and it's further research is definitely needed before we dive further into it. But Essentially, that's what that is. If you've heard of those topics before, those words before, it's essentially how your environment is activating certain genes within us. Anyways, total sidebar. I actually recently read a statistic that around 33% of the population has the genetic predisposition for celiac disease, but 
only 1% actually develop it. Now, 1% of the general population is still a lot of people, if you think about it. It's hundreds of thousands of people with celiac disease. But 33% of us are walking around with the, the predisposition for it. So at any point, we could develop it. Again, what what determines if you will develop it or not can be in your environment. Are you under a ton of stress? Are you exposed to a lot of chemicals? Are you not eating certain foods? Are you know certain things can express those genes and cause that symptom or that disease to develop? What happens is when the genes are activated by a trigger, gluten is also consumed, the immune system is released in response to it. This causes inflammation in the gut lining, specifically the villi or those little tiny protuberance that kind of stick out in the lining of the intestine, which then causes them to shrink down and be destroyed. This is essentially why this is an autoimmune condition. The immune system destroys its own body in response to a trigger versus an immune response, which would simply just destroy the pathogen itself, not the surrounding tissue. The villi in the gut is where nutrients are absorbed. So when there is a destruction or a flattening of this particular part of the gut, nutrients don't get absorbed and you get malabsorption, which can lead, of course, to a number of symptoms and diseases. Some symptoms of celiac disease are the obvious, like you'll get gas, bloating, diarrhea, but also it can be things like anemia and behavior change issues. Again, gut and behavior are connected. Infertility, skin rashes or eczema, poor growth in kids, and hundreds of other symptoms. Also, it's actually common for this particular autoimmune condition to exist in relation to other autoimmune conditions, meaning if somebody has the autoimmune condition Hashimoto's disease or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, it's often seen that they will also have celiac disease as well. There's also wheat allergy. So stepping away from celiac disease and into wheat allergy, they're not the same. They often get thought of as the same, but they're not the same. The difference is a person who is allergic to wheat, that means when they consume it, their body produces antibodies to any of the hundreds of proteins found in wheat, not just gluten, any of them. The reaction typically can occur within within minutes, sometimes hours, after eating a wheat-containing food. It's an immune system response to that particular protein. Celiac disease is an autoimmune response, meaning the immune system is attacking its own body or organs. Symptoms of a wheat allergy can be seen, again, within minutes to hours, and can be things like abdominal pain, nausea, itching, a swelling of the mouth or the tongue or the lips. And of course, the super extreme reaction that everyone is so scared of, the anaphylactic reaction. A person with an allergy to wheat can actually tolerate gluten from non-wheat sources, which I find super interesting, but also kind of like playing Russian roulette. I don't think it's worth it, but to each their own. So non-wheat sources of gluten would be things like sauces or marinades. Um, but Honestly, <laughs> if you have a mild reality, you don't know what protein out of the hundreds of proteins that you may be allergic to, I mean, unless you do a super sensitive test. Um, so it, it's probably best to just avoid gluten at that point anyways, just in case. Just my opinion, though. 
But interestingly enough, a person with an allergy or specifically kids with a wheat allergy may actually outgrow it, similar to other mild allergies. But of course, it's not a guarantee. So the condition that I find most interesting in this whole umbrella of wheat-related or celiac-related conditions is the one that's called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, also called gluten sensitivity. This condition is not an IgE immune reaction like what is found in wheat allergy. For those who aren't familiar with the allergic world, IgE is an immune response. It's it's a heightened immune response where you will get things like anaphylaxis. So non-celiac gluten sensitivity is also not an autoimmune condition like celiac disease, but is more of an acute immune response to the gluten protein. As of now, there are not many tests to confirm And usually non-celiac gluten sensitivity is brought up when both celiac disease and wheat allergy have been ruled out. You, these are the people who they continuously test negative for celiac disease, but they still have the symptoms. So symptoms like bloating, abdominal pain after they eat wheat related products. They also may get headaches, things like that. I have seen a lot of clients who have this type of presentation and each one is a little bit different. You know, there are multiple, probably hundreds of different reactions that somebody could have to a wheat containing product or a gluten containing product. And they don't always, you know, express themselves in the same way as you can imagine. The big question may be, why is this all of a sudden seemingly becoming a problem? I have asked this question many times. Also, do we all need to just be eating gluten-free? Well, that just kind of cover all the bases. Now, I've done a fair amount of research in this area, and like anything, researchers and professionals in this space fall on a spectrum. Some people feel that nobody should eat gluten ever, and some people think it's totally fine to consume. Big spectrum. I personally fall in the middle. I I think there are definitely some people who do better without it and others can find it to be an actually supportive part of their diet. Keep in mind, when the diet industry got a hold of this topic, the gluten-free topic, they turned it into a 6.3 billion with a B dollar industry with projections to grow into the $11.8 billion range by 2030. Keep that in mind. Remember, there's an estimated just 1% of the population with actual celiac disease, and actually around 1% of children have wheat allergy, in which cases around two-thirds of them outgrow it by the time they're 12. So that's a lot of dollars being spent on gluten-free products, and potentially people who don't even need them are spending the money on those. Now, let me be super clear. Just because something is gluten-free doesn't mean it's healthy. I'm going to repeat it. Just because it says gluten-free doesn't mean it's healthy. When you see certain products that say gluten-free, or my favorite when they say now gluten-free, there is a strong likelihood that they had to add a lot of other stuff in it to make it a similar tasting or looking product. Sometimes 
These are things like chemicals or flavorings or other binding ingredients and other things you may not want in your body or your body could respond to. Some people decided to go gluten-free thinking it would be a ticket for weight loss. That happened, oh, about 5, 10, maybe 15 years ago when that whole fad came across. And like many things, some people saw results and promoted it as a way of eating for weight loss. But just like anything, we need to look at why. Ask why. Why did this happen? Why did this result in weight loss? Also ask what the weight loss was made up of in the first place, because it doesn't always translate into fat tissue loss. In the case of someone who is eating a lot of wheat products, and they were also maybe sensitive to the wheat or the gluten, this can show up on the scale in the way of water retention and also inflammation. Remember, if they're sensitive to something, their body has an immune response that causes inflammation. When you remove the trigger to the response, i.e. the gluten in this case, or the wheat products, the inflammation can go down. And if there's enough of it, you could probably absolutely see that on the scale. It doesn't mean there was fat tissue lost, which is what everyone wants and what everyone assumes happen when they see the scale number go down. I will not get on my soapbox about the scale being a waste of time. I think that's pretty clear at this point, but I just wanted to present that that scenario as a possibility. Another thing to consider is that maybe you aren't reacting to the gluten. Maybe it's what's sprayed on the wheat. It is not unheard of for people with a gluten sensitivity to be able to eat breads and pastas in Europe or overseas with no reaction. And then when they come back to the US, they flare up again. This is because of the pesticides and the fungicides that are actually being used on the crops. It can also be the crossbreeding of the different wheat products to make them more resilient to pests. I read a super fascinating paper that I will link below that um, talked about the, how the agricultural processes have changed in the past 10,000 years. Spoiler alert, as you can imagine, it's changed a lot. Certain techniques increase the abundance of wheat, but in the last few hundred years in particular, it's also increased the gluten content of the wheat. This paper actually breaks down the specific genomes of the wheat and how they are cultivated, uh, which is obviously a little more in depth than we need to get on this podcast, but it gives you an idea of what's possible when it comes to crops and farming. It's possible that our bodies just yet haven't adapted to the change in the composition of the crops. Plus you add to that the pesticides and the toxic soils. There are so many layers to this. Hopefully though, that starts your brain thinking other parts of the world grow different breeds of wheat, use less or different pesticides, and people aren't reacting as much or even at all to their wheat products. Again, if you have a wheat allergy or celiac disease, this isn't necessarily the case for you because it's your body's response to those proteins of the wheat. But for those with symptoms of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, this may be actually pretty useful for you. So what do you do with this information? Well, that's totally up to you. I will share, though, some examples of what I've seen in practice, and maybe that'll be helpful for you. So, for example, I had a client who had painful fibromyalgia. She also had migraines frequently. I think it was once every week, one or two a week, I believe. We discussed actually going gluten-free for a few weeks just to see how she would feel. So she did. 
We focus on high quality foods and not just junky foods that simply said gluten-free. I made sure she still was getting all of her fiber and complex carbs because when you simply stop eating sources of gluten, which are usually whole wheat or whole grain items, that can significantly reduce the amount of fiber that someone is getting, as well as B vitamins and other super important nutrients. So you never want to just simply cut out an entire food group or type of food without making sure the supportive aspects of that particular group or food are still in the diet. Hopefully that makes sense. Now, after a few weeks, she noticed a little bit of an improvement, so she decided to continue on for another few weeks. And after about six or eight weeks or so, she felt more energy and she had reduced pain and was only having a migraine maybe once a month or so, which was a huge reduction for her. Now, another client had been to a GI doctor for some stomach pains and they could not figure out the source of them. They did biopsies, they did all sorts of tests, and they confirmed that she didn't have celiac disease, but she still had the symptoms of it. Now, I want to point out that it's not uncommon for somebody to take years to actually be diagnosed with celiac disease, Um, but I just wanted to throw that in there for her, though, because she had the biopsy, they didn't see any flattening of the villi, they ruled it out. Um, Now, she went on a European vacation, though, and ate all sorts of breads and pastas because she kind of had this sense of security because she was ruled out that she didn't have celiac disease, so she went to Europe and she had breads and pastas and all the things. And she didn't have any stomach issues while she was there. Now, when she came back though, she said the stomach issues also came back and she had a lot of fatigue. I think I forgot to mention that, but she had a lot of fatigue going on as well. And the fatigue came back when she came back from vacation. Now she reduced her gluten and her stomach issues went away. She decided that she doesn't, she didn't want to be just based on her history. She didn't want to be gluten free for uh, forever, but she chose to be gluten free for the majority of the time when she was especially at home cooking and not to be as strict or um, structured about it when she was at friend's house or at restaurants. She said she didn't want to be that person that everyone had to like cook differently for and all that. So I, I totally got it. Um, Again, she didn't have an allergy though. And her knowledge at that point, she didn't have celiac disease either. So she did not need to be 100% gluten-free all the time, worrying about cross-contamination and all of that at restaurants and whatnot. So for her and for her lifestyle and what she specifically needed, she chose to reduce the gluten the majority of the time. And then if she happened to get something with gluten in it, she did still experience uh, symptoms, but that was more her... Her choice at that point, knowing that, okay, I really want this pasta. I'll probably get a stomach ache later, but is it worth it for me? Yes, it is. I really like this pasta, whatever. So she was more able to make some of those choices in those moments, which is something that I highly encourage. We want to bring that connection of how our bodies will respond to food and not cause so much restriction and minimization of what we're having, because that will, of course, lead to things like binging and and getting more foods and, and not listening to our bodies. There's a whole list of things that I won't get into, but you can hopefully see that for her, that choice was she was going to cook gluten-free or, or reduce gluten for the majority of the time and not be too restrictive about it when she's out in public. So those are just a few examples or a couple examples, uh, but I wanted to show you that being gluten-free or the need for being gluten-free can present differently. And there are varying levels of response to it based on what you need. So there should not be, and there, there usually can't be an umbrella approach when it comes to something like that. So if you're listening to this and now you're curious if gluten-free or, or being gluten minimum might help your symptoms, I have something that will help you. 
I put together a free guide that helps you understand how to reduce gluten in your diet, as well as a few recipes to try out to show you how easy it can be. Again, I have to say, this is not medical advice. I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to not just simply cut out wheat and call it good. You need to keep your nutrients high and replace those that are being removed when you take out the wheat. So things like fiber, again, B vitamins, magnesium, folic acid, like all sorts of things are being reduced when you take out whole grains and whole wheat. Lots of nutrients come from those particular products. So please work with your doctor or a nutrition professional who can support you in making sure you aren't depriving yourself of key nutrients. The guide I put together can help you get started in in reading labels and finding sources of gluten that you could potentially swap out for other things. I put the link to that that you can download below in the show notes. It's also on my website at foodfactornutrition.com under the freebies tab. So I hope this is helpful for you. Let me know, reach out to me and let me know if you have questions on reducing gluten foods in your diet and specifically if it's helped you or if you are having some certain uh, symptoms or questions around things and and possibly is there a nutrition component to it? I'm going to go ahead and assume there usually is. But if you have specific questions for you in your situation or the situation of someone in your family, you can always schedule a free consultation. The link for that is also in the show notes and also on my website um, that we can go over what you're experiencing and see if I can help in any way. I hope this was helpful and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Food Factor Podcast. It is my personal mission to help people make the best food choices that they can for their particular situation. So if you found this episode helpful, I would be so grateful if you would share it with a friend or a family member or somebody who needs to hear this information and also leave me a review. Those are the things that help get this podcast seen and heard by more people who could use the help as well. I really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening.